We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. My undergraduate degree at the University of Tennessee was in agricultural engineering. They call it biosystems engineering now because I think it, I guess it sounds cooler, but one of the, my focus was soil and water conservation. And for those of you who know anything about soil and water conservation, soil erosion is a major problem, especially for farmers with crops. And Tennessee happens, happened to be, that was 20 plus years ago, the number two state for soil erosion in the country. Because geographically, there's a couple things going on. As you move into East Tennessee, uh, there's a lot of hills and a lot of mountains, and the soil on the sides of hills and mountains struggles to stay on. And as you move into West Tennessee, you've got some of the richest soil in the state, but it's, it, it, we, we grade soil on a spectrum from clay to sand. We know a lot about clay around here because if you've tried to dig a hole in the summertime, it's brutal. Clay doesn't erode a lot because it's really small and it sticks together. Sand is less erosive on the other end of the scale because it's bigger and weightier and it doesn't stick together, but you gotta have a pretty good current to move sand. Well, in West Tennessee, you've got this mix of the two, kind of halfway between, and it's an incredibly fertile soil. I think they call it LUS. It's incredibly fertile, but over the last 7,500 years, most of it's washed into the Mississippi River and down in the Delta. Erosion is a major problem. Well, I remember one of the stories that one of my professors told me uh, about kudzu. If you ever traveled in the Southeast, you know about kudzu. You've seen it. It's, it's over everything. Well, do you know that kudzu was actually introduced in the 1930s by a soil and water, or by a soil conservation office, the Soil Erosion Service and, and Civilian Conservation Corps. They saw kudzu and its fast-growing properties and said, hey, this will stop erosion. And so they introduced it from Asia. And it's been one of the biggest problems in the Southeast. We spend millions of dollars every year trying to control kudzu, and it just outgrows any sort of effort. They can't keep up with it. It's been called uh, the vine that ate the South. The problem is kudzu runs across the top of the ground. It doesn't prevent any erosion. If you go pull, if we could go magically pull up an acre of kudzu on the side of a hill, what you'd see under its incredible gullies of erosion, because it's just a light vine that grows across the top. Looking from the outside, it looks great, but underneath there's erosion and destruction. You know, I think today the church suffers from a sort of kudzu, things that look great on the outside. You know, we're all aware of the, the flow of the prosperity gospel across the world. Almost everywhere I travel, there are preachers that are proclaiming that if you follow Jesus, you can have more power, that Jesus wants you to have wealth, that, that if you just become a Christian, Jesus will make everything better. And I doubt many of you here tonight are followers of the prosperity gospel. We could probably have a conversation and you've got your own arguments to make. But none of us really buy in fully to the prosperity gospel. But I think in some ways we can sort of get seduced by some of the peripheral ideas of that. That we've taken Jesus' call and his promise of abundant life 
and we've turned it into sort of a human-centered, materialistic gospel that, yeah, we don't believe Jesus will make us rich, but maybe we're seduced to sort of idolize our comfort. We're seduced to idolize our retirement packages or our, our income or the house we live in. We're seduced to pursue things and kind of baptize them in, in, a, in a sort of a, I guess, a promise of God's blessing without realizing that a lot of times those are actually kudzu over what's actually happening in our heart. And if we look at the American church, I think this is rampant. We're consumed with our comfort. I'm consumed with my comfort. I want life to be easy. I want life to be comfortable. And oftentimes when hardship comes, I feel like it's unusual. Yet when we look at the call of Christ, he calls us to lay down our lives. The last shall be first. Jesus flips the whole script in the New Testament. As we saw a little in the Sermon on the Mount, but we, we, we refer to it kind of as the upside down world. That Jesus calls us not to be rich and happy. He calls us to turn our lives down, that it's, it's really in the giving of ourselves that both he is glorified and that that's where he gives us the abundant life. God is eternally self-giving. We were made in his image to be self-giving, and yet we walk through life clinging to what's comfortable. Well, as we look at our text tonight, what we're going to see in Nehemiah's life is, is a running to the other end, the other end of that spectrum. That, that Nehemiah is faced with a difficult circumstance. He's received this report from his brother. He knows things aren't going well in Jerusalem, and he's troubled. And if you remember last week, we read his prayer that he wept and he fasted and he grieved for the people, not just because they were his friends and family, but because of what the shame that it brought on God's name. And tonight, we're going to see Nehemiah take steps. And the interesting thing is they're, they're bold steps, but they're not heroic. There's nothing in this text that you and I can't do. It's actually simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. What he did was hard. And, and if you look at tonight's text, one of the things we're going to see is this, this idea working together of God calling Nehemiah to sacrifice, but then God actually providing and taking care of Nehemiah as he does it. And so let's look at the text. A couple of background issues we need to, to deal with before we get into the text. Um, we usually read this story backward, right? If, if there was a book written about Nehemiah, he must have done something great. And therefore, we sort of overlay that on top. It's important, I think, to think about this story, though, from Nehemiah's perspective, from what it must have felt like, what it must have been like for him to actually make the request of the king that he's about to make. Remember last week, we flashed back to Ezra chapter 4, that, that story of the accusations that were brought against the temple builders. And then later now, uh, those that are constructing in Jerusalem. And we read how Artaxerxes because the reputation of the Israelites were that they would rebel, Artaxerxes puts out a, a notice and says, stop, stop building. The Israelites can no longer build. There are people that tend to be rebellious. 
So the question Nehemiah is going to ask Artaxerxes tonight is to actually reverse course on one of his declarations, which is a pretty big deal. The second thing you've got to remember, uh, remember the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, we get a description of just what it is that Mordecai is asking Esther to do. Remember, he says, you've got to go to the king and tell him what's about to happen. You've got to step up. And in chapter 4, we get a little insight into, now this is a different king, but it's the same kingdom. We get a little insight into just how serious it is to approach the king. In chapter 4, verse 11 of Esther, it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. Now we remember that from Esther's story. And, and here's the thing. We just found out at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah's a cupbearer to the king. So for Nehemiah, the same situation doesn't apply. He has the direct access to the king. He's not at fear of death. But I'm just trying to convey here the seriousness of the court. This isn't Nehemiah having a casual conversation with his buddy, the king. Approaching the king can have grave consequences. Challenging the king can have deadly consequences. So Nehemiah is putting himself out there to ask the king to change a decree that he's made. And so let's look at how Nehemiah does that. He says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes. So we know that this is four months after Nehemiah first heard the news. So for four months, he's been praying and he's been fasting and he's been processing, you know, what's the solution? Uh, it says in those four months, he said, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. He wants you to know for these four months, he's been faithful. He's kept a happy face. He's, he's, he's put on a good front. He's done his role as a faithful cupbearer, tasting the food and the wine before the king to make sure there's no plot against the king. That even in his grief, even in his trouble, even in his worrying about the situation, Nehemiah's kept a happy face. But in verse 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah, I can see that you're not sick, but you're sad. So I must conclude that you're sad because something's happening in your heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why would Nehemiah have been afraid? I think when we read this, a lot of times we might think of a casual friendship. Hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? That's not likely what's happening here at all. If the cupbearer is the one that tastes the king's food and tastes the king's drink, then the cupbearer would surely be out there as the first person you want if you were going to do a conspiracy against the king. So when Nehemiah comes in with a heavy heart, the king's probably triggered a little suspicion here. And he's like, hey, why are you sad? Is there a plot? I understand that 
in the training and the looking for, for suicide bombers and for those that are attending ill, there's almost always a guilty look, a distraction, a concern that agents train to recognize that can see. And I think, so Artaxerxes looks and says, hey, what's wrong? That's why Nehemiah is scared. Wait a minute. It's not what you think. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. You don't need to worry about me, king. Let the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This is a tie back to chapter one, obviously. The gates are destroyed by fire. He's concerned about the, the location. He's concerned about the graves. He's concerned about the shame, the ruins, the destruction. King, how could I possibly be happy? Nehemiah is more concerned about the people, about the land, than he is his own comfort. I have to almost ask the question, would I be so bold? Or would I just sit back and say, you know what, my role is just to pray. I'm just going to be faithful where I am, and I'm just going to pray for those people that are in hardship. But that's not Nehemiah's move. Nehemiah's move is to put it out there before the king and to say, hey, king, there's an issue here. God's people, their location is in disarray. But that statement, may the king live forever, he's going to say later, may it please the king. Nehemiah is truly a good subject here. He's truly concerned. He's loyal to the king. And so you've got these two things in tension, his loyalty to the king and his concern for the people. He didn't see any contradiction here that, that Nehemiah's first move isn't, I've got to rebel against Persia and go fix Jerusalem. His first move isn't, I've got to manipulate my circumstances and go help Jerusalem. Nehemiah probably knew uh, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He believed that, that if God's going to work, he can change this guy's heart. We've seen that before, right? We saw it with Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1. As Cyrus issued a decree to let the people go back, even though he wasn't a believer. We saw it in Darius, who allowed the work to be started again after it had been ended. That Nehemiah and Ezra, if there's anything you see in Nehemiah and Ezra, it's how God works in the hearts of people to change the course. And so just like Zerubbabel, just like Ezra, Nehemiah knows that God can move in the heart of this king. It's not an either or. He can be loyal to the king and also accomplish God's purposes. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed. What do you want? This question isn't a threatening question. This is a concern question of, hey, what can I do for you? What are you asking? He seems to have found favor right away. And it's interesting, his knee jerk is, so I prayed. I think it was one of those quick prayers of, oh, Lord, help me say the right thing. And what's interesting about that prayer 
is that that prayer comes quickly in the context of a relationship with God. This is a guy who has spent four months praying and fasting before the Lord and thinking and processing. So he fires a quick one up and says, Lord, help me. It's all about the context of his relationship with God. It's, it's a conversation. You know, if, if, if I think about relationship, that th- this quick prayer is appropriate because of Nehemiah's relationship with God. If I had no relationship and I just walked up to somebody on the street and said, get me a Coke or what's for dinner, that'd be really weird. But if I go home to my wife who I have a relationship with and I say, what's for dinner? It's a completely appropriate question in the context of a relationship. And so I think what's implied in this text, so I said a, quick, so I said a prayer The king asks the question and he realizes, God, this is my chance. Let me glorify you by being primarily concerned with what you're concerned with. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, again, he's being submissive, he's being appropriate, He's not trying to manipulate, and he's not trying to threaten. If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. The Nehemiah takes a humble posture before the king. He doesn't come in with a sense of entitlement. King, you owe this to me. I'm going to cash in a chip so that you'll do what I want. He comes with a humble posture and says, if it pleases the king, do this thing. Send me back. Nehemiah is not an armchair quarterback here. He's not trying to direct traffic from a distance. He's willing. Think about his life. He's, he's tasting the king's food and wine. That's got to taste pretty good. He's in the, the palace. He travels with the king from the summer to the winter palace. What kind of a comfortable life must Nehemiah have had, and yet he's willing to say, hey, send me. I can't help but laugh a little bit and think, you know, do you think Nehemiah knew what he was getting himself into back in chapter 1? When he hears the story, he's grieved, he prays, he fasts, he asks the Lord to intervene. Do you think in that moment he thought he was going to be the one to do it? But over this time period... God has shown him that you're the one that's going to go back. He sends Nehemiah. Verse 6, the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him. There's a weird word here for queen. It's not the typical word used for queen. So commentators different on whether this is the official queen or this is uh, his favorite from the harem. We don't know for sure. One of the big, the biggest ideas, there's a witness present. That, that this situation, since the queen didn't typically come to the big festivals, the idea is this is probably more of a private setting that Nehemiah is before the king. That, that the queen provides a witness to this conversation that's going on. Some have even speculated that uh, maybe she has, Nehemiah has found favor in her sight. So it's It's a uh, pragmatic thing that's taking place. But the text doesn't really say that. It just says she's there. 
as a witness. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? You know, Nehemiah doesn't tell us, certainly he told the king, he doesn't tell us how long he's going to be gone. He's a guy that's found favor, provides comfort to the king. The king's probably concerned with how far you're going to be gone. We learn later in chapter 5 that Nehemiah becomes governor and serves as governor for 12 years. But probably Nehemiah tells him, and, and Nehemiah probably goes for an initial period and sees the wall rebuilt and then returns back and then is sent to be the governor. Uh, that's the assumption. He says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Verse 7, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And there's a lot going on here. One of the things we notice right off the bat is when he's asked the question, Nehemiah has a specific plan. He doesn't go off half-cocked. He doesn't run into the king and make the demands, and then, I don't know, you fix it. I think we realize that God, um, he works through our preparation. Some of the churches I went to when I was younger sort of had this idea, you know, pastors would even feel like to prepare a sermon would be to get in the way of God. That if I spend time studying and prepping, the Holy Spirit doesn't work through me to accomplish my purposes. But that's not a biblical idea at all. God often and usually works through our preparation. And Nehemiah, I think in those four months, he's not been procrastinating, he's been planning. So he has a very specific list that he gives to the king when the king says, what do you need? A couple of things to note. He's not just going in and burden the king about a difficult situation. We can do that, right? We just gripe. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is going wrong. That's going wrong. Nehemiah's not just belly aching about the situation in Jerusalem. He has shown up with a shovel and ready to dig. He understood the situation. He had done some research. He knew what was needed in Jerusalem, what he needed to fix. He's carefully crafted this plan. You know, Proverbs 21, 31, we talked about it a few weeks ago. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. But victory belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah has a concrete plan that he offers to the king. And so we recognize that. And at the same time, I think it'd be inappropriate to celebrate Nehemiah as if he's the one that solves this problem. You know, he asks for, he asks for great things. He needs letters to pass through. Basically, he wants to make sure that the lands that he passed through on the way to Jerusalem, and then when he shows up in Jerusalem, everybody understands he's got the authority to do what he's trying to do. Uh, he asks for a letter to Asaph. That's probably, that's a Jewish name, so it's probably a, a Jewish official, official in Lebanon that's over the, the wood. 
And he says, we need wood that we can have timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple. The fortress was probably on the north side because that was the easiest side to attack. Lumber for his own house, lumber for the gates. He says, and the king granted me what I asked. So if we stopped right here, we'd have a great business book. Approach with humility, have a concrete plan, and execute that plan. We could write a book on Nehemiah's leadership principles. And that's true, that's good. Nehemiah is a model for us of this kind of faithfulness. But don't skip over the end of verse 8. The good hand of my God was upon me. Remember back in chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We talked about, I think, that this man. It's just a, it's a generic term. Nehemiah recognizes he serves the king, but he's not impressed with the fact that he's the king. He recognizes that he's just a man and God can grant him favor. And so Nehemiah has asked to find favor in the eyes of the king. And lo and behold, when his promise is answered, I mean, when his request is answered, what does he say? The Lord granted because his hand was on me. It feels repetitive as we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And I think that's the point. That all these men, when they're faithful to do the things they're faithful to do, they don't take the credit. They recognize that God's the ultimate architect, the one that put it all together, the one that moved in the hearts of the kings, the one that provided through the benevolence of the people. He's the one that stirred in their hearts to give. That all throughout these books, we're just bombarded with this idea of walk faithfully, do what God wants you to do, and he'll take care of the details. Do you trust him is the question. That's hard for me sometimes. As an engineer, I want to solve problems. I want to fix things. I want to, and, and when things seem overwhelming, I want to flee. That's not what these guys did. They stepped out of their comfort zone. They did what God told them to. And God came through in a dramatic way. Again, remember, the king has actually issued an order that none of this building should happen because he perceived the people as a threat. And yet here he is granting Nehemiah everything he wanted. The only way to describe that change of heart is that God flipped a switch. That God changed the king's heart. So yes, Nehemiah did a great job of preparing, but ultimately, God is the one that moved and made this possible. And I think the lesson for us is that Nehemiah didn't get what he wanted by manipulating the king. He didn't get what he wanted by bribing some officials to get it. That would have been a pragmatic move, right? I'm going to break the, the law. The means will justify the end because Jerusalem will get built. Nehemiah is not a manipulator. Uh, he's not a master in negotiating. There was no negotiating that took place here. He's not a deal maker. He's not a swindler. He didn't trick the king into this situation. 
that ultimately he realized that God had prepared Nehemiah for this meeting. God had prepared the king for this meeting. And God intervened to accomplish God's purposes through the actions of Nehemiah and the king. I think about 1 Corinthians 2. Beginning of verse 1, I came to you, brothers. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. There's a tendency to lean on our own strengths. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Guys, we are in a culture that convinces us that we can do it. We're in a culture that convinces us that our strength is an asset. But when I read through these words, I'm cut to the heart to realize that it's God, it's his movement. That's the secret sauce. The power of the gospel isn't my ability to persuade anyone. It's the work of the spirit, both in my life and the life of the one receiving the message. That's a theme throughout scripture. It's, it's God working in the background. And I think in our modern minds, we really struggle with that. Everything has to be tangible. And you can't tangibly measure God's work. But we get these stories every once in a while about Cyrus, about Darius, and now about Artaxerxes, where there's no denying it's the work of God. But guess what? He does that in our ordinary everyday lives as well. He's constantly working behind the scenes in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And we have to make the choice if, like Nehemiah, we'll lay down our lives. Will we follow him? Will we give up our comfort? Will we give up our wealth? Will we give up our familiarity with the life we live so that God can work? That we are... The poison of our culture is the temptation to rely on our own abilities, the self-made man. Verse 9, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. We have no evidence that Nehemiah asked for the military to follow him, but the king sent them. It's not a lack of trust in Nehemiah. It's, it's, again, it's submission and the granting of authority by the king. And what's interesting is we don't even get to know what these letters say. But verse 10, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, the, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. What is it about these guys that hate what Nehemiah is doing? That they're against the seeking of the welfare. I think spiritually, the issue is probably tied back to Ezra 9 and 10. What happened in Ezra 9 and 10? Well, the people put out their foreign wives. 
that there's an offensiveness if you live in the land around Jerusalem and you start hearing about wives that are put out because they were idol worshipers, then you're offended. Spiritually, there's an issue happening. Uh, But then politically as well, the walls would make Jerusalem more independent. That the power of the Samaritans around them would diminish. They wouldn't have the same access that they had before. Nehemiah is coming to build a people, to build a a wall, to restore the political fortune, to restore the spiritual fortune, to to bring these people together in their identity as worshipers of Yahweh. And the world hates that. They despise that. It's convicting. It's threatening. They don't want anything to do with it. That this is going to diminish Sanballat's authority. We find out he becomes a, a governor later, but it diminishes his authority. And then, and then think about it this way. Back in Ezra 4, we get those two stories in Ezra 4. Two times, two different kings are petitioned about these rebellious people. That if you let them build, they're going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to rebel against you, king. And both times the king shuts things down. So the reputation of the Israelites is they're going to cause problems if you let them build. And what's interesting is both of those things were shut down just by mere rumors. So how did we get to the point where a rumor would shut down the construction to where now the king is actually sending his army and his letters to support the work that's taking place? And, and you wonder about this guy, Tobiah, is he a descendant of the same Tobiah who was rejected from the Jewish community back in Ezra 1 because he couldn't provide sufficient tithes uh, of his father's house? So we've got all sorts of, of jealousy, of power fear, of, of, of concerns about these people, and, and now they face opposition. Opposition because they're frustrated that their plans are thwarted. It's a reversal by the king to allow the Jews to rebuild the city. They're going to be able to establish their own community. They're going to be able to establish their own identity without being subject to the leaders in Samaria. And they are against it. And so another little note here that that when we faithfully step to take action in an area that God's concerned with. We've got to be prepared to trust God, but we've also got to be able to anticipate opposition. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this opposition in the coming weeks. But for right now, the big point is Nehemiah is being faithful, and in his faithfulness, it didn't turn into a county fair, that there's real opposition that they're going to face is they follow God. Opposition's not a symptom or a sign of wrongdoing. I think a lot of times we can view life that way. It's another one of those kudzu areas that we can think if opposition comes, if pain comes, if struggle comes, if suffering comes, if illness comes, then something must be wrong. But the reality is, if Nehemiah wasn't protected from opposition, you and I aren't protected from opposition. Opposition is part of life in a fallen world. And so we even need to expect it as we follow God. And then really, if you think about it, 
How was this whole thing made possible? How did this reversal take place that Nehemiah must have been an impressive guy before Artaxerxes? That his reputation, that, that think about Artaxerxes has gone from commissioning the shutting down of the building of these people because he's afraid they're rebellious to where God has worked now. Nehemiah has been such a model in front of him that the king can send him back to rebuild these walls thinking, I can trust Nehemiah. He's been tasting my food and drinking my drink faithfully for all these years. If there's anybody I could trust that won't re be rebellious, we'll send this guy out. You know, as we think about this text and we apply it to our lives, the struggle is there's so much here. We can talk about the faithfulness of Nehemiah, his, his testimony before the king. We can talk about God's work through Nehemiah to accomplish his purposes, his desires. We can talk about the planning process that Nehemiah went through. I think when I think about this and I think about our lives, I step back a little bit though and I start to think about our hearts. I think about the fact that Nehemiah planned and processed and even thought about this. The fact he was willing to give up his comfort when most of us are watching that and we're thinking about, I, I, I can't think of a specific example, but I think about movies where somebody gets rich and they start to realize the richness doesn't bring happiness and so they start to give everything away. There's this part of my heart that's like, well, hold on to some of it. You know, I just, even watching a movie, I have this sense of, well, just hold on to a little bit of it. And I'm struck by Nehemiah's example of laying it all down, his willingness to follow. I came across a quote uh, by Paul Borthwick in a book, Leading the Way. He said, it's possible to evade a multitude of sorrows through the cultivation of an insignificant life. Indeed, if a man's ambition is to avoid troubles in life, the recipe is simple. Shed your ambitions in every direction. Cut the wings of every soaring purpose and seek a life with the fewest contacts and relations. If you want to get through the world with the smallest trouble, reduce yourself to the smallest compass. Tiny souls can dodge through life. Bigger souls are blocked on every side. As soon as a man begins to enlarge his life, his resistances are multiplied. Let a man remove his petty, selfish purposes and enthrone Christ, and his sufferings will be increased on every, on every side. Jesus calls us to lay down his life. Nehemiah shouldn't be thought of as a hero for taking this step. He just did what was faithful. We shouldn't sit back in awe and say, wow, I could never do that. We are people called to lay down our lives in the same way. and to watch God faithfully provide. Think of, a, think of a difficult decision you've had to make in your life where following God actually came with a cost. And then I would ask you if you ever regretted it. The gospel that we so often hear calls us to comfort, to peace, to prosperity. It's kudzu though. When you get below the surface, that's an empty, false calling. That's an empty, eroded Christian life. 
He calls us to lay it down, to go before the king and to ask for the impossible, knowing that God will take care of him. What problems are you aware of that God may just be calling you to address or to serve? For some of you, it's spending more time with others to engage, to be trained, to be equipped to reach out to neighbors and family members. For some of you, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to spend more time ministering to others, maybe a call into to ministry, a call to be prepared for ministry. We have opportunities all over this church for you to serve. We're grieved over the number of non-believers around the world. There are three million untrained pastors in the world. Maybe God's calling you to, to lay down your life, to consider moving, to consider traveling to another part of the world to lay down your life in an insignificant way. That Jesus' call has an edge. And when we read it, my first response is to, to say, you don't need to feel guilty about that. But sometimes his call to us is a deep call. It calls us to sacrifice. Are you willing? Am I willing to sacrifice what he's asking me to sacrifice, to lay down what he's asking me to lay down, to inconvenience myself for the sake of others? It may not be a call to the mission field. It may be a call to serve faithfully in a ministry here in the church or in your community. I think about conversations. What conversation are you afraid to have? For Nehemiah, I got to imagine there was some stress walking into the king to have this tough conversation. Are there conversations that you're afraid to have? Somebody that you need to talk to? You're afraid to talk to them because you're afraid of the consequences? Or you're afraid of the person? Know that God is with you. And the consequences of that conversation are going to be better than avoiding it. I guarantee. Are you a person that just sits back and gripes? You know, social media gives us an incredible opportunity to be activists by just posting our name and our opinions on a forum, whether anonymously or even with our own name. Our culture gives us opportunities to just vent and, and I am the worst at it. What are you doing about it? Where can you take action? That good followers come with solutions, not just gripes. And that's why Nehemiah is impressive and that he didn't just go before the king half cocked, just a gripe, but he came with a plan that he was willing to lay his life down to. What kind of a follower are you? What kind of a citizen are you? What kind of a community member are you? And then finally, are you aware and sensitive to the things that God is concerned with? Do you spend time in prayer having your will transformed to God's will? Are you even aware of what he's concerned with that you should be concerned with. 
Nehemiah humbles me in the sense that, man, I just don't know that I would do that. I don't know that I would be so broken about the suffering of other people. And that scares me about my heart. That I'm so concerned with Chris Cobble. It's kudzu. That we need to be concerned with the things that God is concerned about. And to do that, we need to have an intimate relationship with him. The good news is, he's here. He's with us. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have full access to the throne. That Jesus is our mediator, but allows us to talk directly to God. The only thing standing between you and a relationship with God is distraction or sin. And so as I stand here before you, having not perfected this after a bunch of years, I would say we need to commit in our hearts to be concerned with the things that God is concerned about. And we need to be willing to take action to rectify those things, to be faithful, to walk where he asks, is asked us to walk. And when we do that, though there will be opposition, we can trust and know that if we're doing his will, he's going to accomplish his purposes, that we are his instruments. And we can bank on that. Let's pray. Father, we want your will By faith, we say that because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Usually, we want our will. But Lord, by faith, we trust and know that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe who is holy and righteous and able to see it all. And your righteousness and your holiness and your mercy and your justice help us to know that we can trust you even when we don't feel like it. So Lord, I pray for every soul in this room tonight and everyone watching on a screen that you would work in our hearts to bear fruit, to accomplish your purposes, and that we would not falter to be distracted. In your son's name, amen.